But I started a new series last week about the issue of resurrection, rediscovering and defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, uh, we're just looking at, uh, as we develop this thought, this understanding, uh, a central primary pillar of our redemption, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb is, is, is crucial. Um, there's two pillars in God's structure. And this, just never forget this, the two pillars, and I know you've heard this, many times it may be um, it's one thing to hear things it's another thing to hear things <laughs> you know um, but the two pillars in your salvation and your redemption is first of all the cross and the empty tomb and there's unique things that God did through the cross and there's unique things that he did through the empty tomb and they're essential for us to be able to live eternally with God and so that's what we are trying to rediscover and re, just kind of re-emphasize in our lives today because it's really de-emphasized today in the church and we need to, need to really get this nailed down in our hearts. I mentioned last week this issue here, the C.S. Lewis, I, I used this quote, I remember just at the close of the message where C.S. Lewis said in the book Miracles, he said, in the earliest days of Christianity, an apostle was first and foremost a man who claimed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. To preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. I know oftentimes, in fact, uh, most of the time in my younger years as a, as a, as a child um, and actually even as a young disciple in Jesus, the primary thing when I heard about the gospel was about the cross. Uh, rarely do we ever talk about the resurrection. We rarely was ever preached about. And then consequently, uh, well, we did hear about it once a year on Easter. Uh, you know, Good Friday, of course, the, was the cross. And then Sunday was Easter, the empty tomb. But most of the time when the, when the gospel is preached uh, today, it's only about the cross. And if I want to challenge you to examine the epistles and examine the book of Acts and find out when the gospel is preached, a lot of times not just the cross was preached, but the issue of the resurrection was preached as well. Because it's a, it's a double-fisted it's a double-fisted plan as far as God is concerned. It's a double whammy here that we need to overcome the devil as well as to overcome the grave. Lord, we pray today that as we continue to look at this uh, very serious and blessed issue of the empty tomb of our Savior, I pray that you'll help us to understand, uh, Lord, just down deep in our souls, I pray that you'll just make this one of those foundation stones that, we, that uh, our faith rests upon. In Jesus' name, amen. As Protestants, you know, we see uh, that Jesus called us to remember two sacraments until he comes again. And uh, we know this very well and know as Protestants. Uh, the first sacrament, of course, is uh, the issue of the Lord's Supper. We, you know, we, we celebrate communion, don't we? And what that, what that emphasizes, of course, is, is the death of Jesus. It emphasizes his, his death on the cross. And Jesus said, as often as you drink this, this cup and eat this bread, remember what I've done for you. Remember that I've poured out my blood. This is the new blood of the covenant, the, the new, new covenant. And I poured out my blood and sacrificed my body for the forgiveness of sins. The other sacrament that we celebrate, of course, is baptism. And baptism is, celebrates resurrection. That uh, when you, um, you know, the, the, 
you know, symbolism is this, is that when you go underneath the water, uh, you're going down, you're dying to the old life. You're dying to your sinful ways. You're dying to the, your love for the world. And as you are raised up out of the water, it symbolizes being raised to new life. It means, Paul says, it means that the resurrection power of Jesus that raised him from the dead is, has transformed our souls. Has We used to be dead in our sins and transgressions and the miracle power of the empty tomb. When Jesus rose from the dead, it transforms us. It changes our souls. God's law is written on our hearts and we become brand new people. Brand new people. And it's, uh, again, it's through this resurrection power. That's what that is emphasized in baptism. And that's why it's important for us to continue, you know, to uh, practice those two sacraments as, as the church. Amen. Loved ones, as you, uh, as you read through the Gospels again, I, I just want to challenge you uh, to look at how often the death and the blood of Jesus is mentioned. And whenever his blood is mentioned, it's just another word for death. Uh, and the death, the, you know, the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus is his death on the cross. How often it is mentioned. But also take notice how very, very important it is, uh, it was to the apostles and to the leaders of the early church to emphasize the resurrection. Um, the resurrection message oftentimes caused the pagans to really sneer. To sneer. You remember when the Apostle Paul was in Acts chapter 17 when he got the opportunity to speak to the, to the big shots? He had the opportunity to speak to the intellectuals up on Mars Hill. Everything was going just fine as he's talking about how God created the world and because, you know, uh, they're not Jews, so they wouldn't understand anything about Old Testament, you know, law and all that stuff. So he has to approach Gentile pagans from a whole different perspective, different angle to communicate the gospel to them. So he's, he explained to them how God created the world. And, and then he talks about how that he divided, God divided the nations and put us where he wants us. And then he talks about how there came a man who died. And then this same man is, uh, is going to come back again and judge the world. Everything's okay so far. No, nobody's interrupted him until he says this. And he proved this, that this is authentic, that this is going to really happen. He said, this is really going to happen, that he's going to come back and judge the world because he raised him from the dead. Read it there in Acts 17. As soon as he said that, then they busted out laughing and said, oh, you're, a, you're a moron, you know, you're a babbler. Get, get this guy out of here. The whole idea of th- thinking that someone could come back from the dead, could rise from the dead, is, uh, is, is a silly thought in the pagan world. And it's still a silly thought today in our secular world. L- last Sunday we, we saw that the scriptures frequently mentioned that the, the hope uh, that we have as disciples of Jesus. Uh, when we run to Jesus, and this is really what we do, you know, this is the proper way to think about the gospel. Um, when we first meet Jesus, when we first hear about Jesus, um, the idea is not to invite him into our life. The idea is to run to him for salvation. Um, the Bible teaches it that way, that we are to flee to God. We're to flee to God to escape his wrath. That that's what salvation is. That salvation is escape from the wrath of God, the wrath of judgment upon sin, upon sinners. And so for someone to become a Christian, they have to run to God. 
Uh, it's not a it's not a mild thing. It's not just a it's not a uh, it's not just a, a casual thing. It's a really serious thing that you have a, you realize that sinners are under God's judgment, and that God and, and judgment that judgment is separation from God. That judgment is actually a place called hell, and it's a place of punishment because of rebellion against God. And so the Bible says to flee to the Lord. You know, it's run from your sin and run to Jesus. And that's how we are saved, is that we run to Him and fall at His feet. We fall at His cross. We kneel at His cross, surrendered to Him. But then we come to that time too in our life where as we surrender to Him, we get smarter and smarter. We realize that there's something, and again, I don't know how this, how this all the time works out, but it, work, it, it is this way, is that there comes this point where we say, I uh, see a need, Lord, in my life to uh, consciously surrender and consecrate myself to your full authority. It's um, just, uh, it's just you're becoming smarter about spiritual things as the Holy Spirit is helping you and you just see that need in your life. And, and it's like you're actually inviting Jesus to fellowship with you. And he wants to, and that's where you have uh, uh, the... Revelation chapter 3 where he says I stand at the door and knock and he's talking to his people there. He's not talking to sinners. He's talking to his people. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody would open the door I'll come in. He's talking to Christians. I'm talking to sinners. He said listen I need a fellowship with you. (laughs) We need part of being mine is we we fellowship together and that uh, you're and that you're totally surrendered and committed to me and that I come into your house and I rule over you that's what uh, that's what the gospel is amen that's what it means that's that's an understanding of this gospel amen the um it's interesting in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, um, it re- it's revealed there that the devil's goal is to deceive all people, is to deceive people from understanding this glorious hope of redemption that God has provided through the cross and through the resurrection of his son Jesus. When the Apostle John was exiled on the uh, prison island of Patmos, for preaching about Jesus and for his testimony about Christ, he was suddenly caught up, it said, in the Holy Spirit there, as you read there in Revelation chapter 1. He was on the Lord's day, he was on the Lord's day, and he was he suddenly caught up in the, in the Holy Spirit. And it says here that he heard a voice instructing him to write down some instructions to seven particular churches. Seven particular churches there in Asia Minor. And when he turned around to see who was speaking, his gaze fell upon the glorified Jesus. He knew it was Jesus, but it wasn't quite the Jesus he remembered by the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> he looked different. It wasn't the Jesus he saw on, 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 the, on the, you know, the seashore there. It was the same Jesus, but Jesus, he looked different. John said, oh my goodness, his, he was, uh, his hair was white as snow. His face was like the sun. His eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet were like polished bronze. And his voice when he spoke was like the mighty ocean waves. What does that mean? I don't know. But 
It was something powerful and significant and understandable to John. The Apostle John collapsed under fear. He, he just fell down dead. But Jesus touched him. It was the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus that he knew. Jesus touched him and, and said this. He said, uh, don't be afraid. And, uh, the Lord always is saying that to us who belong to him. Aren't you glad about that? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, which that's another way of saying that, you know, it's not that Jesus is going to come to an end. It means that I was at the beginning of human history and I'm going to be the last one here in human history. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the beginning and, I, and I'm the period, you know, that I'm in control of things that are going on in human history. And I am the living one. Look at that. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in the grave. Now, loved ones, do you see how important the death and resurrection of Jesus is? It is so important that Jesus talks about it as he's revealing the future to John, as he revealed to John, his, his apostle. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive now forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in the grave, or in the Greek, at Miss Hades, the place of the dead. Now, there is a plea that Jesus makes to these churches, these seven churches, and I'm sure you've read it through uh, there in chapters 2 and 3 many times, but there's seven churches there, and in chapter 3, there's a church there by the name of, uh, that is located in Laodicea, and the Christians at this church had drifted away from Jesus. They drifted away from him. Um, they were still loosely connected to him. They, they hadn't totally, you know, abandoned him. They were still loosely connected. Um, they were kind of like on a long rope. <laughs> they had kind of like let themselves out. They, they didn't want to be totally disconnected from Jesus, but, but they weren't really too close to him either. You know, they, 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 were, they were like kind of loosely connected. Uh, they had forgotten how he saved them from the wrath of God. They had forgotten that. And that, and uh, and the wrath of God that was coming upon the world, and and its system of living, they had slowly become friends with the world system to a degree. They weren't necessarily all-out pagans yet, uh, but they were, if you will, if you if you will, they were riding the fence. They were riding the fence, and more times than not, they were siding or compromising their values with the plans and the ideals that are at the heart of an anti-God system in this world. They were, they were so saying more. They were more in love with the worldly system of living than they were with the, the God system of living. The Laodiceans, they, Jesus said they were, uh, what did he say? He said they were, what, lukewarm in their, in their um, commitment, in their love for him. They were lukewarm warm. He said, I really wish you were uh, cold or hot. And by saying that, he didn't mean that by cold being, I wish you just hated my guts. And by hot, I, I, they were deeply in love with me. No, he, was, he wasn't saying that. He, he was saying that, I wish you were, were um, either, that you were completely in love with me. <laughs> either way, I, want you, I just wish you were completely in love with me. Not this mixing, this mixing of trying to love me and trying to love the world at the same time. He said, that makes me sick. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying it's this, this mixing of your, your loyalty to want to wanna say you love me, but then at the same time, you're, you don't want to go all the way. You're, you you, you wanna, don't want to burn your bridges with the world. You want to still be connected to it as well. <laughs> That's what lukewarm means. It means to be compromising. It means to be connected, to try to be connected to both, both God and, or to both Christ and this world. Hmm. The Laodiceans, they were, uh, they, uh, they were doing this, I guess. They, they were trying to, they were trying to, to, to go, uh, to live, going in the opposite directions. And of course, Lot's wife is a good example of that, who she's leaving Sodom and she wasn't supposed to turn around, but she looked around at Sodom and the Bible says she became a pillar of salt. And, and um, so Jesus used even um, Lot's wife as an example of, being, of warning against compromising with the world. They were... Uh, the Laodiceans, they really were just like us in this sense, that, they, that um, the, the pressures, the, they were facing pressures that conforming to this world's mindset. Um, you know, the world's mindset, loved ones, um, it's in our face every day. It is. It's in our face every day. It's in my face every day. Every day. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you jump into the water, and if you go under the water... You know how, uh, and you're swimming underwater. The water totally touches every single part of your body, right? You're in, in encapsulated in water. That's what we're like in the world every day. <laughs> we're a, we're a kind of a weird uh, when if we're really walking with the Lord, we're kind of strange. We're like. Uh, um, the water, the, the, the world tries to sink us, but we just keep floating up. <laughs> Even though it's surrounding us, it's pressing on us, trying to force us down, and we just keep bobbing up. It, it can't sink us. We're like a bobber. It just can't take us under. Unless we're compromising, and then we're more like the world, and it's, it is sinking us. But, but um, I'm going to tell you, Lamont's uh, all of us who love Christ, we face this external pressure to take the easy road that gets along with this world. Uh, we, we all want to get along, right? But I, I mean, I, I, I face it. I, I'm tempted at times to uh, take the cowardly road that cools my passion for Jesus and uh, confession time here and, and hide in the shadows of safety when Jesus is calling me to take a stand for him or to represent him in some visible way by resisting evil with his, with his love and his truth and his holiness. How do you know that you've become lukewarm in your love for Jesus? How do you know that? I ask myself that, Lord, am I? It's a good thing to pray about, Lord, am I lukewarm? No matter how long you walk with Jesus, it's good to ask yourself that. Lord, how am I? Am I lukewarm? And you know, and, and uh, I, I need to hear from you, not to hear that devil's false accusations. We we know that he he'll throw that at us at times when it's not true. But sometimes I, I need to ask the Lord that, and uh, 
Jesus, remember, he taught us this. He said, uh, he taught us in, in Mark here, he said uh, that what does it profit a person to gain this whole temporary world and yet in the end lose the only thing that we possess that's eternal? That, that's our souls. So what's, what good is it to, you're, you're sacrificing your, your, yourself for, the, for something that's passing away uh, when you're sacrificing something eternal for something that's passing away. It's, he said it really doesn't make sense, does it? And what does Jesus mean by gaining the whole world? Well, again, he's just not talking about the rich and famous here. He's not talking about, he's talking about them, of course, but not just them. I mean, I tell you, I've seen a lot of worldly poor people. <laughs> I've seen a lot of worldly poor people. Most of the people I work with, they're not rich and famous. Most people I minister to are what you would call they're not, they're not the richest people in the world. They're, they're, they'd be poor compared to a lot, of, a, a lot of people. And yet, they're worldly. Man, they have the passion inside uh, to be worldly. They, you know, they, they, uh, they're a person, uh, you know, they, um, they, they don't have many possessions. They don't have much money. And yet, there's this inward zeal, this inward drive. They want more stuff. I want more things. And I don't want to stand out in the crowd. I want to look just like everybody else. I want to have nice clothes like everybody else does. You know, they, and, and, and I, want to look, I want to look at what other people look at. I want to satisfy the, the physical desires, the sensual desires I have, you know, just like everybody else does. And, and I, want to get in, I want to go first. Now you got the rich people who want to go first. You got the poor people who want to go first. That's what worldliness is. It's it's uh, Apostle John said that you know that uh, the, that worldliness, of course, it uh, or John James said it, it hates God. And the Apostle John says you can tell what what worldliness is. And First John he said that worldliness is its cravings for what you see. It's cravings. Um, uh, you know, for physical and sensual pleasure, and it's always putting yourself first. So, you know, the, of course, the, the love for money um, and stuff—it drives it all. This money is what makes the world what makes the world go round, isn't it? The world will stop spinning if people didn't have a desire for money. You'd think, but um, the world is all about getting more money. And it spits in the Creator's face every, every time it revolves around. And uh, because you say, PD, this Christianity stuff is hard. You ain't just telling me. <laughs> it's, it's impossible unless something miraculous happens to our lives. It's impossible to follow God unless something miraculous happens to our lives because the world is so strong uh, in its attraction to us. Jesus reaches out to us. He's trying to help us to see the, the true and lasting riches he's, he's provided for us. I went through chapters 2 and 3 of Re Revelation. And listen to this. Jesus, of course, he, um, he's talking to those seven churches. And um, all but one he has some criticism toward. And... Um, he, he criticizes them as saying, listen, I have, this, I have this against you, and if you'll do this and this, then at the bottom, before he, before he stops talking to them, he says, I will give you this if you will repent. It's really kind of cool. And I kind of summarized what he said to these seven churches. Listen to this. This is, this is what I'll do. 
That's what I do if you'll just repent and stay surrendered to me fully and, and uh, saying no to the world, um, being on guard against it. He, he said this, repent. Uh, remember the foundational things of your life in me. Church in Ephesus, he says, repent. Now, remember the foundational things in life because that's what will give your life strength. Remember the foundational things. He said, repent. The suffering you must endure for me is just temporary. Aren't you glad about that? Sometimes when we're staying faithful to Jesus, we're staying faithful to Jesus and we're suffering, he says, he's pleased with us and he says, it's just going to be temporary. Please keep holding on. Hold on. He goes on to say, repent. I'll give you some of the hidden manna. And that was a symbolism which meant all the blessings of life that Jesus has provided for his disciples. He said it's hidden because the world can't see it. The world doesn't understand the cross. The world doesn't understand the resurrection at all. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness to them. And Jesus said it's hidden to them, but it's I will show you the great blessings I will pour out upon you if you'll repent and hold to these two great truths of what I've done for you through the cross and the empty tomb. Repent and clutch to yourself what I have provided again in the cross and the empty tomb and I will give you the morning star which is um, a symbol of bright victory over your darkest trials. <laughs> Repent and fully associate yourself with me and I will acknowledge to the Father you, that you belong to me. <laughs> Come and learn and I will, I will make you fully victorious, firmly established in God's eternal family and I will write my name all over you. All over. That's my possession. And I tell you, those are great, uh, great possessions to have that Jesus wants to give us. He gives us hope. This hope is, again, just a bulging, just bulging with the abundant riches that are eternal. These riches are, again, are not currently in our possession yet, but they are promised to us by our Heavenly Father. And, of course, as we talked about last week, they're guarantee us, guaranteed to us because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We sense the Spirit's presence, and that's always a reminder that there's more to come, more greatness to come. Amen. Have you ever lain awake at night, laid awake, lain awake, whatever way you want to say it. And, uh, you know, maybe not able to sleep. That happens to me a lot. I'm not able to sleep. And the thought comes to you, I wonder why I can't tickle myself. You ever thought about that? I've thought about that. I mean, you know, uh, how many of you have thought about that before? Come on. How many of you? I wonder why I can't tickle myself. Becky's thought about it. Yeah, I know. Why can't I tickle myself? Am I the only... Is there nobody else that's ever thought that? I know you have. You just don't want to admit it. Uh, yeah. Why can't I tickle myself? I, <laughs> it's one of the deeper questions of life, isn't it? It's, uh, it, it's strange how... Uh, isn't it strange how having somebody else massage a, a sore muscle always feels way better than when you rub the muscle yourself? Isn't that something? I, well, why is that? I, it's kind of it's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, 
actually the tickling question goes back a long way. So listen, I'm gonna, you're going to be impressed with me here because that question that ponders that, that I've thought about has actually been in the minds of some very great thinkers over the decades, over the, over the, over the, over the, over the, over the you know, millennia. Uh, the Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote that only human beings are susceptible to tickling. Only, only we can be tickled, apparently. And mankind is the only creature that truly laughs. No other creature on earth laughs but us. <laughs> There's actually been quite a bit of research on this issue of tickling. Probably, uh, I, I'm going to guess, it's probably one of those appropriations grants from the Congress that, you know, that probably... Well, that's why there's so much scientific data on it. But, but um, scientists, they still aren't sure why it's impossible to tickle yourself. Well, that, and that makes sense. You know, they just want another appropriation probably. But um, they're not sure why it's impossible uh, that you can't, that you, impossible to, to tickle yourself. And there's two types of tickling. The first tickling is to just barely, you know, you can do it yourself. You can barely touch yourself just very lightly. And you might get goosebumps. Or it might there be some, a slight sensation of, you know, it's not a true tickle, but there's, a, there's a, sens a sensation, you know, that you can feel like, oh, yeah, that, you know, I need, to, I, need to, I need to scratch that or something, you know. But, um, you know, so there, there is that. Uh, but um, the second type, where there's uncontrollable laughter type of tickle, can only be induced by another person. You can't tickle yourself and make yourself laugh. Um, they don't know why, but, but um, tickle laughter isn't true laughter, actually. It's actually desperation. <laughs> Becky will tell you. I'll tell you. She says, she says, if you tickle me, I will die. That's what she tells me. So she threatens me that I'm going to be a widower if I ever tickle her. So she says, I will die. So um, happy feelings, quote-unquote, during a tickle are actually part of an uncontrollable defense mechanism. It's not genuine laughter. So this, uh, so scientists, they say, so practice safe and consensual tickling. <laughs> not dumb. Uh, but I think that's interesting. You can't tickle yourself, you know. You know what? It's impossible to tickle yourself. You know what else? It's impossible to save yourself from hell. You cannot save yourself from eternal destruction. No, nobody can. I tell you, it's a hard pill to swallow. Some of our Amish uh, friends around here, uh, I've talked to them before, and they're working so hard to do enough good. I'm not kidding. That's what they're doing, to do enough good to hopefully have enough on this, the side of good that when they die, they'll be led into heaven. We can't build a bridge to our Creator. He had to build it for us. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, this is amazing. For every house is built by someone but God is the builder of everything. I tell you, there's a lot of power and a lot of, a lot of truth in that little, that little sentence there. Loved ones, there's, there's some deep thoughts here. Let me just read Colossians here as we try to wind this down. We've got a lot more to cover, but listen to this. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything... He might have the, supreme, the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness. Look at that. Listen, listen to that. That is so key. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. A spiritual being filling a physical body. That's key. That is key. We needed a savior who had flesh and blood. For God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell on him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's actually two realms we live in and I think I'm going to just, we'll just cover this next week. But let me just kind of highlight it here for you. Is that the way God designed this world is of course he's, he's made an invisible world. It's a spiritual world. It's a spiritual world. That world is occupied by angels and fallen angels also. Those angels are unique. They have spiritual bodies. It's called thrones and powers. That's what Paul says here in Colossians. But then God created another realm as well. It's a physical world. That's the reality. We, we see it around us. Uh, first of all, we see our flesh, you know. And... Um, we're the ones who dwell in this physical world, but also there's something unique about us in that we're made in God's image. And so therefore, we dwell in a spiritual world as well. We are different than the angels. We're a little lower than they are, the Hebrew writer says, but he says we're different in them. Um, that we're spirit as well as physical. They're only spiritual. Angels are only spiritual. They don't, have phys- they don't have a body like ours. They, don't have, they have a spiritual body, but the Bible tells us that we are different. We are of, of two different realms. We have a soul and a spirit. We are, we are made in God's image, but yet we have this flesh. We need a Savior who could dwell in both worlds. So Jesus came and He's the fullness of God came in bodily form, in flesh. Forever our God-man Savior. He'll never not be the God-man. And the angels ponder it like, oh, what amazing thing that the Creator would save those creatures down there that look inferior to us. Yet they're not inferior. Someday they won't be inferior because when Jesus comes back, we'll be elevated above the angels. (laughs) That's why the resurrection and the cross were so necessary was to save us, our spiritual part of us, to forgive us and transform us within and also to redeem us, our physical bodies, through the resurrection to give us an eternal glorious body. So God is the builder of all things. 
Let me close. I'd like to close with a song today. Thank you for your kind attention today. I'd like to close with a song that just reminds us that God is the builder, has provided for us through his death, the death of his son, and his resurrection. Amen.
as we leave today, we pray that uh, your spirit will continue to reemphasize in our hearts the validity of the word of God, the truth of God, the truth of Jesus' death and his res- resurrection. Well, I pray today there be someone here that doesn't have that confidence knowing that, that they belong to you, that they are a son, that they are a daughter of, of God. And I pray that they would, would seek you today if you're calling them, I pray you'll seek them today. That they will seek you that today and that they will surrender to you. They will run to you. They will flee to you. That they may know the wonder and the goodness and the kindness and the, the love of God. Father, I pray that as we leave that you will uh, again remind us of your goodness and, and uh, to go in this understanding that even though the world is pressuring us from all sides, that we have the opportunity to shine bright as we stay surrendered to you. And uh, basically, Lord, give our all to you to not want to be safe, but just throw ourselves, abandon ourselves into your care, into your plan, your will for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for your kind attention today. Lord bless you. Let's stand together and I pray you'll be encouraged today in the Lord as you uh, enjoy this beautiful day. Amen.